The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The title of today's sermon is The Church Expands. The Church Expands. What does it mean for something or, or someone to expand? Well, uh, the number of people who got COVID in the last year expanded. If you have vanilla ice cream at home and no other flavors, your options will expand if you go to an ice cream store. The, the money in your bank account can expand if you invest it wisely. The belly of a pregnant woman expands as the baby in her womb grows. And the belly of a man may expand for other reasons. <laughs> so to expand is to make become larger, more extensive. And that's what the church does in the book of Acts. The church expands. Now remember, we're, we're, we're preaching through the gospel, excuse me, we're preaching through the book of Acts, which is part two to the gospel according to Luke. And it might help just to refresh big picture here. If I were to summarize the, the big picture theological message of each book, it, it'd go like this. For the gospel according to Luke, it'd be this. Jesus the Messiah fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And then Acts, which continues that first part. So this is part two. Jesus the Messiah continues to fulfill God's plan. And here it's by expanding the early church in the face of opposition through the Holy Spirit's power. And that bit right there, we see every bit of that in our passage in Acts 8, 1 to 25. So that's what this whole passage is about. Luke is telling the story to show that Jesus the Messiah continues to fulfill God's plan by expanding the early church in the face of opposition through the Holy Spirit's power. So I'd like to preach to you from Acts 1, excuse me, Acts 8 verses 1 to 25 on the subject, the church expands. And our passage shows three ways that the church expands, and I'd like to work through the passage in those three ways. Here they are. First, the church expands in the face of opposition. That's in the first three verses. And then second, the church expands from Jerusalem to Samaria, verses 4 to 13. And then finally, the church expands through the Holy Spirit's power. And that's the end of the passage. So we'll start first with verses 1 to 3, but let's get a, run, a running start back up a few verses into the end of chapter 7. Remember, chapter, diver, chapter divisions are superficial. They're not God-breathed. And here, this is continuing a story. So let's kind of back up a little bit and, and get a running start with chapter 7, verse 58. Then they, that is the Sanhedrin, cast him, that is Stephen, out of the city and stoned him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He, he died. Now, note that second sentence in verse 58. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why do you think Luke includes that sentence? Well, it's because Saul or Paul is such an important part of this story of the early church expanding. Now, side note here, 
many people assume that Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. Kind of like a, a name change, like how Abram became Abraham or Jacob became Israel. But that's not accurate. Uh, the names Saul and Paul refer to the same person throughout the story. Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name. It was typical for Greek-speaking Jews in the first century to have a Hebrew name and a Greek name, and that's why, for example, Acts 13.9 says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. So Luke is referring to the converted man as Saul. So if, if this intrigues you, if I just totally popped a bubble that you know, your whole life feels like it's out of whack here. If you want to research this, you could search uh, for an online article by a fellow named Greg Lanier, L-A-N-I-E-R, called No, Saul the Persecutor Did Not Become Paul the Apostle. Really good article. Okay, back to the text. Uh, now let's read Acts 8, 1 to 3. This uh, starts off, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Three observations here. Number one, the most obvious, is that Saul is ravaging the church. And let's look at the specific ways Luke describes this. In verse 1, Saul approves of Stephen's execution. So the, the church was emotionally raw over Stephen's murder. That's why verse 2 says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So Stephen is the church's first martyr. And the Christians in Jerusalem are, are gut-punched. They're deeply mourning Stephen's execution. But Saul hardly agrees with the execution. He thinks it was a good thing. And then what happened immediately after Stephen's execution? Verse 1 says, There arose in that day a great persecution against the church. That word persecution translates a word that means a program or process designed to harass and oppress someone. And this wasn't a little persecution. What, what does Luke say? This is a great persecution. And that great persecution caused the church members in Jerusalem to be scattered, verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, from the city to the countryside. Just imagine a persecution so great in the Minneapolis area that we had to flee from the city lest we be arrested or killed. And verse 3 just says it straight up. Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging. That word ravaging translates a word that means to cause harm to, injure, damage, spoil, ruin, destroy. So the idea is that Saul is attempting to destroy the church. And verse 3 says how? Entering house after house to search for followers of Christ. He was obsessed to find and destroy Christians. 
Verse 3 says he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This sounds like what happened during World War II in Belgium and the Netherlands when German soldiers would terrorize the locals by going door to door to seek people harboring Jews and hiding. Saul's going door to door to hunt Christians. Saul's ravaging the church. Second observation, even in the face of Saul's fierce persecution, the church continues to expand. Verse 2 says that the members of the church in Jerusalem were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, if you were writing the game plan for the church expanding, is this how you'd draw it up? None of us would do that, would we? Uh, we, we if we want to, to grow, if, if there's a catalyst for church growth, we'd say we want unbelievers to see our good works and glorify God and happily expand, right? But the church is expanding here differently. We don't want persecution to jumpstart the church's expansion, but that's often how God sovereignly ordains for the church to expand. And there are many reasons for this, and we don't know them all. But we can guess at some of them. Uh, why is persecution often a God-ordained catalyst for the church to grow, for the church to expand? Here's one reason that I suspect. When the church is comfortable and wealthy and safe and secure, the church can become worldly and earthly-minded and apathetic and weak and selfish and preoccupied with staying safe and secure. And when God's enemies intend evil for the church, God uses even their evil for good. So we can be confident in that. This has been the case throughout history, throughout the whole history of the church, uh, for the past 2,000 years. A fellow named Tertullian, he's a church father in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, famously said this, the oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. The blood of Christians is seed is seed. And the church is continuing to expand in the face of opposition today. We feel it to some degree here, but not in the physical sense that many throughout the world feel it. Here are, according to the world watch list for 2021, here are the 10 places today where it's hardest to follow Jesus. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. And the church is expanding even in those places. Praise God. If you'd like to to read an inspiring and informative article about persecution today, check out DesiringGod.org for Tim Cassie's recent article. Here's the title, Remember Our Chains, The State of the Persecuted Church. It's an inspiring read. Here's a third observation from this passage. The church honored Stephen. Verse 2 says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. If someone in our context spoke like Stephen did in Acts 7, I imagine some Christians would object to Stephen's tactlessness. I imagine the apostles James and Peter and John would receive emails that complained, what was Stephen thinking? And how selfish of him to speak that way to to the Sanhedrin. 
Can you believe he said to them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit? What a fool. I wish he'd been more winsome. And now we're all suffering because of his folly. But what does God breathe scripture say about Stephen? How does it describe him? Chapter 6, verse 8. He is full of grace and power. In chapter 7, verse 55, when he spoke to the Sanhedrin, he was full of the Holy Spirit. So here's a principle from a John Piper sermon, I think back in 1991 when he was preaching through Acts. He said, when persecution comes because of courageous, faithful, God-honoring obedience, godly people don't blame the servant of the Lord. They give honor. The church honored Stephen. Here's a second way the church expands in this passage. It's verses 4 to 13. The church expands from Jerusalem to Samaria. Philip preaches Christ in Samaria. Let's read this, verses 4 to 13. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed, Christ, proclaimed to them Christ. And pause it for a second. So when it says, went down to the city of Samaria, you think, if you know your geography, you've got Jerusalem and Samaria to the north. So why is he going down? It's because Jerusalem's up in elevation. So you go up to Jerusalem and you go down from Jerusalem. So that, that's that. And then the, the phrase, to the city of Samaria, that could be translated uh, a city in Samaria. So there's some debate there. I, I prefer the latter a little bit, but not a big deal. The point is, he's in the region of Samaria, and he's preaching Christ there. Let's keep reading verse 6. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. That's evil magic, sorcery, witchcraft, the occult. He had practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So all social classes. They're saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. He's the great power of God. Yikes. And they, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic, his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Four observations about this passage. First, the church expands from Jerusalem to Samaria. Verse 1 says that the church members were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria or a city in the region of Samaria. So here's a, a map from the Holman Bible Atlas that shows Judea and Samaria. Note particularly the green part here, that's Judea. And the purple part, that's Samaria. I'll circle Jerusalem within Judea. That's where Stephen was stoned. And this is, this is uh, the place where Philip departs to go to Samaria. So travels up to Samaria. Now this geography lesson is important. Here's why. Remember what Jesus promises his disciples in Acts 1.8. I think this is a programmatic text for the whole book of Acts. You will receive 
power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, that's that big green area, and Samaria, the purple area, and to the end of the earth. So right here in, in, in Acts 8, Luke is telling the story of how the early church expanded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And let's, let's just pause here for a moment talking about how significant this is because uh, it's easy to miss if you're not familiar with what the rest of Scripture says about Samaria. Uh, this connects not just to Acts 1.8. It connects to the Gospels and to the Old Testament. So Jesus had already directly addressed the ethnic-based tension in the, in the first century between Jews and Samaritans. You can read about it in Luke 10, 25 to 38. It's, we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is a big deal for Jews because Jews despise Samaritans. Do you remember when, the, when the, the Jews were accusing Jesus, they were insulting him in John 8, 48, and they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That was a way of insulting someone. Uh, they didn't think highly of Samaritans. Uh, it was an insult for a Jew to call another Jew a Samaritan. Jews thought Samaritans were defiled with Gentile blood and pagan worship practices. Here's why. Back in the Old Testament, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital city of Samaria in 722 B.C., you can read about this in 1 Kings 16. And the Assyrians deported many Israelites to Assyria and then repopulated Israel with foreigners. And those foreigners intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And the result was Samaritans. Jews regarded the Samaritans as ethnic half-breeds. And Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch. And, not, and they didn't hold the rest of the Old Testament as part of Scripture. So when the Gospel of John tells the story of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, he adds this aside, John 4, 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's why Jesus' request for a drink surprises the woman at the well. Uh, many Jews viewed all Samaritans as ritually defiled, and, and she didn't expect Jesus to talk to her, let alone become ritually defiled by touching her, her water pot, even though she doesn't know that Jesus can't become ritually defiled. He sanctifies what he touches. So Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan would have been shocking to a Jew and a Samaritan at the time, and that story teaches that God's people must love their neighbors across ethnic lines, even when there is ethnic tension and conflict and even when showing such love is countercultural and costly and inconvenient. Now, here's where this all comes together. The story about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, the programmatic statement in Acts 1-8, the story we're reading in Acts 8, it all connects here. Uh, it's Samaria connects. You will be my witnesses in Samaria. And here in Acts 8, the gospel's going to Samaria. And next sermon, we'll hear about an Ethiopian eunuch here as well. Here's a, a second observation from this passage. The church expands by proclaiming Christ. So if the catalyst for the church to expand is persecution, then the means for the church to expand is proclaiming Christ. In verse 4, it's preaching the word. In verse 5, proclaiming Christ. Verse 12, 
It's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Preaching Christ is how people receive the word of God. That's how verse 14 puts it. Samaria had received the word of God. And later in our passage, verse 25, Peter and John testify and speak the word of the Lord. They preach the gospel. Preaching Christ is how the church expands. It's how the church expanded at the very beginning. It's how the church expands today. We preach Christ. And that's why our church's uh, recent uh, affirmations and denials and ethnic harmony include this line. We affirm, it's more than a line, uh, this, this, this statement. Uh, we affirm that the mission of the church is the great commission. Make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commands us. God has commissioned local churches acting corporately to teach everything Jesus commanded and to equip saints for their various ministries. While Christians care about alleviating present earthly suffering, we care especially about alleviating eternal suffering. And how do we do that? By verbally proclaiming Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord and calling all to repent and believe. That's how the church expands. That's our mission as a church. And sometimes when the church expands, especially to unreached peoples, God kindly gives signs and wonders to accompany the gospel message, to authenticate the message. And we see that in verses 6 and 7 and 13. And we'll see it later in chapter 14, 3 and 15, 12. Here's a third observation. God's people rejoice when he saves them. Look again at verse 8, very end. So there was much joy in that city. Much joy. Later in this chapter, 839, so Philip baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch and says, Luke says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Much joy, rejoicing. And then Acts 16.34, after the Philippian jailer and his household trust Jesus, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This pattern reminds me of what the shepherds told the angels on the night Jesus was born to back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for whom? For all the people, including Samaritans, including the people in Samaria. God's people rejoices. They, they rejoice when he saves them. One, one more observation. The gospel can affect the most unlikely people. We saw this as we talked about the Samaritans. The Samaritans seemed to the Jews as unlikely people whom God would make his own, right? But, but the gospel can affect even the most unlikely people. And another unlikely person is Simon. We'll talk about him as we examine the third way the church expands. Number three, the church expands through the Holy Spirit's power. So in verses 14 to 25, the Christians in Samaria receive the Holy Spirit and Peter rebukes Simon. Let's read this passage and then share a few observations. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles 
at Jerusalem. You might, you might be thinking, wait, I, th- I thought everyone left Jerusalem. No, remember verse 1 says that the church was scattered except the apostles. So they're still there. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles, of, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, this ability, this authority also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. You are bitterly envious, and you're in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Two observations here. First, this story about receiving the Holy Spirit is describing what happened, not prescribing exactly how it must happen. The whole story here in verses 1 to 25 is really, it's just recounting how the early church expanded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then eventually to the end of the earth. It's describing, not prescribing. In other words, the story is history that explains how we got from there to here. The story about receiving the Holy Spirit in verses 15, 16, and 17 is not a how-to manual for how Christians today must experience spirit baptism. It's describing how the early church initially expanded, how what happened in Jerusalem on Pentecost rippled out to Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. On the day of Pentecost, recall, this is what Peter preached. It's chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All who are far off includes those in Samaria. Samaria is a key ethnic boundary to cross as the church expands from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the end of the earth. So the apostle Peter and the apostle John, verse 25, preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the church is expanding through the Holy Spirit's power. So I think that the way Samaritans become Christians and then later are baptized in the Spirit is unique to this transitional period in the history of God's saving people. I mean, just think back to what just happened at Pentecost in Jerusalem in Acts 2. Now the church is expanding. So why wait for two apostles to come from Jerusalem to Samaria? Remember that Philip, who preached, was not an apostle. Why wait for the apostles to come? Well, this would ensure that the church in Jerusalem and the church in Samaria wouldn't splinter and divide. The church would be united 
as it spreads from Jerusalem to, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Here's how New Testament scholar Mark Strauss puts it. God delayed giving the Spirit to the Samaritans for the sake of Christian unity. Number one, to confirm to the Samaritans that they were one with the Jerusalem church. And number two, to confirm to the Jerusalem church that the Samaritans were indeed saved. The period of Acts is a time of transition, and the book's purpose is to show the gospel's relentless advance, not to establish normative patterns for church life and polity. So, second observation. The story about Simon challenges us to persevere in faith and good works. Now, this story about Simon, it's, it's verses 9 to 13 and 18 to 24, is puzzling. What do we make of Simon? There are at least three views on how to perceive Simon here. First is that Simon was never a genuine believer. So, according to this view, Simon is a false believer who merely professes to be saved, but he's not genuinely saved. He's an apostate. So some Bible interpreters, including Irenaeus in the 2nd century, Eusebius in the 3rd century, Chrysostom in the 4th century, they argue that Simon did not genuinely believe in Jesus. And the main reason for this is Simon's bribe and Peter's rebuke in verses 18 to 24. Other reasons in verses 9 to 13 are that Simon is wrongly preoccupied with signs that Philip does and that his believing is no more genuine than the false disciples who believed in Jesus in John 2, 23 to 25. And as a category of someone being a professing believer but not a genuine believer, the Bible certainly teaches that some people profess to follow Christ but eventually fall away and thus demonstrate that they were never genuine Christians. Matthew 7, Matthew 13, parable of soils, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, that passage. Uh, if you want to track down this more, you, you could search on an article I wrote for the Gospel Coalition called, What is Apostasy? Can a Christian become apostate? So it is possible that Simon is an apostate, a person who once claimed to be a Christian but has irreversibly abandoned and renounced Orthodox Christianity. That's possible. But so is a second view, and that's that Simon is a genuine believer. According to this view, Simon converts from a sorcerer to a genuine follower of Jesus. So verse 13 says, Simon himself believed. That is, he believed as did the other Samaritans. And after being baptized, and what that signifies Philip thought Simon's conversion was genuine. He baptized him, or oversaw it at least. After being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So that highlights that Philip's signs are far superior to the cheap evil magic Simon had been doing. So if Luke is recounting that Simon was genuinely converted, then here's a plausible way to read, read all this. So uh, verse 9, Simon practiced sorcery and claimed to be somebody great. Then verse 10, the people in Samaria agreed that Simon was powerful and great. Uh, but God breaks in, and the people believe the good news about the kingdom of God, verse 12, and the name of Jesus Christ, and both men and women are baptized. You know, praise God. And it's in verse 13, it's not just the other people, but even Simon himself believed. So Simon is this big fish in the small pond of Samaria. He's the evil sorcerer who wowed everyone with his great power, but now he's a baptized follower of Jesus who continues with Philip. And instead of being amazed 
at Simon's, instead of, instead of others being uh, amazed at, at Simon's magic, now Simon is amazed at the great signs and miracles that Philip is performing. Now, how would we understand verses 18 to 23 if Philip is, excuse me, if Simon's a genuine believer? Well, in verses 18 and 19, we have to say that Simon sins as a believer. So he offers money to Peter and John in exchange for receiving the power to lay his hands on people so they can receive the Holy Spirit in this dramatic way. By the way, this is where the term simony comes from. Simony, you heard that term? So simony refers to buying or selling church-related privileges, like being a church official, simony. So Peter's response in verses 20 to 23 is sharp. It has four parts that correspond to the four verses, 20, 21, 22, 23. So verse 20, Peter rebukes Simon with the threat of a curse if Simon doesn't repent. So it's a serious sin to offer money in exchange for spiritual power. Simon was bribing God's apostles to try to manipulate God. Not good. Verse 21, Peter rebukes Simon for not having his heart right in God's sight. Verse 22, Peter commands Simon to repent and ask the Lord to forgive him. And then verse 23, Peter explains that Simon must repent because he's full of envy. I see that you're in the gall of bitterness. That's an, that's an idiom that means to be full of envy of someone. So Simon is not just covetous, he's envious. Do you know the difference between being covetous and being envious? Here's how my, my colleague Joe Rigney explains it to his boys. Covetousness is wanting something so much it makes you fussy. Covetousness wants what the other guy has. Envy is angry that the other guy has it. Covetousness is oriented toward your neighbor's possessions Envy toward the man himself. So here, Simon is envying the power of Peter and John. He wants the same power. That's covetousness, and he envies the ones who have it. Now, what about Simon's reply in verse 24? Pray for me yourself. Well, that could be a negative statement, like, pray for me yourself. Or uh, it could be positive. Like he's showing remorse and begging, please pray for me. And if that's the case, Simon's showing evidence that he's a genuine follower of Jesus. Then again, according to some church tradition, he was the church's first heretic. <laughs> so, so which is it? Uh, it, it I, I think a third view is, is, is uh, more likely in my, in my mind. And that's that Luke is intentionally ambiguous about whether Simon is a genuine believer or not. This, this view doesn't satisfy many people. Uh, let me explain it. I don't sense freedom to say with the authority of the Bible that Simon is a false believer or that Simon is a genuine believer. I don't think Luke tells us enough information to be dogmatic. And that's a bit unsettling to me. But I suspect that Luke is being ambiguous on purpose. It's, it's underscoring that genuine believers must persevere. Genuine followers of Jesus are not sinless. We're, we're, we are sinners but we're repenting sinners. Repenting is Christianity 101. So whether you're convinced of view one or view two or view three here, I think we should all be able to agree on the principle that this story about Simon is challenging us to persevere in faith and good works. So to summarize our passage, three ways the church expands. The church expands in the face of opposition. 
the church expands geographically from Jerusalem to Samaria. And third, the church expands through the Holy Spirit's power. The point of this story in Acts 8 is not primarily to say, do this, don't do that. This story is supposed to encourage us that this is how we got from there to here. This is an encouraging story. Uh, This is how the gospel and the church moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. It crossed the ethnic boundary of Samaria. Wow. And we'll see in later sermons on Acts how it moves to the end of the earth. This is a story about how the early church expanded, and this is how the church continues to expand today. So let's just think through this real briefly. Number one, today the church continues to expand in the face of opposition. Praise God that the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. Matthew 16, 18. Number two, today the church continues to expand geographically as God's people proclaim the gospel to people of this world. Praise God that the basis for making disciples is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. It's Matthew 28, 18. And third, today the church continues to expand not through our strength, praise God, but through the Holy Spirit's power. Praise God that we who follow Christ have received the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have continued to expand Christ's church in the face of opposition. Thank you that you have continued to expand Christ's church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the end of the earth. And thank you that you have continued to expand Christ's church through the Holy Spirit's power. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.